It's September 28th, 2008, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Today's guest is Lou Lesko, and Lou has been many things in his career. A photographer, a writer, a director, a software developer, a businessman, and for some in the industry, a lightning rod for controversy. But for me, what makes Lou's career interesting is not so much what he's accomplished, but how he's done it. There's often a mistaken belief that success in photography can be achieved by following a well-worn and clear path and almost paint-by-the-numbers system for becoming a professional photographer. That's a fantasy. If there's anything simple about this business, it's that you have to work hard and put yourself out there. It's those two things that allow you to take advantage of luck when it finally and inevitably crosses your path. Lou Lesko is a perfect example of that. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Lou Lesko. Welcome to the Candid Frame. Uh, first question for you is, when did you know that photography was going to be your life, your life's passion? <laughs> it started by accident. Uh, my friend Lisa Kurth, who was a model in San Francisco, had modeling test pictures done, and she asked me to take her to the photographer's studio to pick them up. And when I looked at them, it was like this beautiful girl with makeup on, like laying down on the beach. And then, like, on the tra- standing on the train tracks, I thought, oh, that looks like fun. So I got my dad's circa 1965 Nikon F2 out and shot a picture of my friend Ingrid, who was gorgeous with big boobs, and threw on my parents' carpet and litter with um, these old photo floods that my dad had lying around. And then I took my um, friend Pam, who I had this like, huge crush on, threw in the backyard at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon with this gorgeous, gorgeous speckled light coming through the... Uh, trees and harsh shadows everywhere and took a picture of her and blew them up to eight and a half by 11 because I think that's the size that you got at the drugstore and double uh, taped the uh, pictures into a peachy folder and (laughs) 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 went to the most powerful agency on the west coast which is at the time called the Gramey Agency being run by Jimmy Gramey and I walked in and the secretary was incredibly diplomatic and took my portfolio back to the booking room and there was this uproarious laughter, and then she came out and she said, well, you're not quite right for us, but we encourage you to try some of the other agencies. And when I got in the elevator going down, when I figured out that they were laughing at me, I figured they must like me. So I uh, kept going back, and I couldn't get on to the sixth floor where the modeling agency was, but the fifth floor had a modeling school, and there was a girl there named Marsha Heckman who just was very effusive and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm a photographer. And she goes, oh, all right, we'll shoot these people. And she handed me a stack of, of Polaroids and phone numbers, and it was people trying to be models in their modeling school, and so I shot all these people. And then that went on for about six, eight months. <clears throat> and I went back to the agency to drop off pictures to the modeling school, and there was this uh, uh, guy named Michael Martini who was walking up the steps with me because the elevator was broken. And he said, who are you? And I said, I'm a photographer. And he goes, let me see your book. And I showed him my portfolio, and he goes, oh, my God, the photography's not horrible, but these girls, oh, hideous, hideous. <laughs> I said, that's your modeling school girls. He goes, oh. That modeling school exists for a party habit. Come with me. And he took me upstairs, and I went to the booking room, and all of a sudden he's pulling cards off the high board, and 
he's the one who fostered my career. Um, I started shooting for him, and I had, back in the days of film, I'd bring him a strip of film, 35mm, and he'd look through it through a loop, and would tell me that, hey, this is, this is good, and I was patting myself on the back, and he rolled it up, the film up, and uh, threw it at me, and he said, if I want good, I'll talk to 90% of the people shooting out there. He said, if you shoot for me, you shoot brilliantly, or you don't shoot at all, and he'd make me reshoot everything. Mm. And that's how I got started. <laughs> so, it was the, like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> the, that that first moment when yeah. you have the peachy folder, yeah, and you hear the laughter, and you're getting sent away. For, for many people, that would be crushing, and they would never want to face that kind of rejection again, and would never return or even consider submitting their portfolio. A lot of people avoid even putting them in a situation where they get rejected because they want either they either never do it or they delay it by waiting for perfection to happen. So why, what was it about you? Was it naivete that allowed you to sort of Absolutely persist? naivete, yeah. It was, I was 18 years old and um, I was, I took a year off between high school and college and I was the lifeguard in Marin County. So whatever happened professionally in terms of my photography career, I got in care. And when they laughed at me, I thought, it was just like a big old good time. I had no idea the attitude of the fashion industry in the slightest. I just had no idea. I didn't, you know, I was getting inspired from fashion magazines, but I really had no idea what I was doing. Mm. And I learned lighting. There was this book, I can't even remember who did it, but he's sort of one of these very kitschy 70s photographers and he used to draw the diagrams how everything was lit. I said, oh, that's how things were lit. And then I had no money for lighting gear, so I just shot everything on location. And for the first two years of my career, everything was like, it was like a Tony Scott movie in early in his career. Everything was like sunset, sunset, sunset. Remember mm -hmm. Top Gun? Sunset shots everywhere because he came from this like commercial background. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just shoot at sunset every day. What a great gig. My hours are four to sunset and then I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> the fashion is about, about the clothes and a lot of people who, who aspire to, uh, to shoot fashion or even people who start shooting fashion um, make the mistake of focusing on the girl rather than the clothes. What was your sort of learning process in terms of discovering how to photograph clothes, fabric, you know, rather than fixating on, on the model in them. Michael Martini, the person who was throwing film at me all the time, um, was about the story. Michael very much wanted to uh, capture the beauty of people, but the beauty had to be interwoven into a story. And because I was shooting in San Francisco, uh, there were times when I would do a model test and we'd go to the agency, meet the model there, do makeup at the agency, and then we'd, no exaggeration, run up to the roof and look at where the sun was still shining because the fog would come in in the afternoon. And then we'd go to that part of town and then I'd be in this part of town all of a sudden, like I had to conjure up some sort of story for the environment that I was in with the girls and the clothes and everything else like that. And that was probably the, the best lesson that I learned sort of very much on the fly a lot of pressure from Michael and thinking quickly to create stories around the uh, fashion because as I came to learn, fashion is a depiction of an attitude which is backed by some sort of story. It's an imaginary story in the person's head who's wearing the clothes, mm -hmm. but it is an extension of that story and that's the story that they want to tell the people that are around them and that's how it all sort of came together for me. And where did you go from there once you, after a couple of years, did you start um, working for uh, a particular... Did you, did you start working editorially? Did you start working commercially? What, what was the sort of the big, progression? The big the, pre the progression was 
was start and stop. It was very bizarre. But I, the big thing in San Francisco at the time, um, this is um, 84, 1984. I was 19 years old or so, 20 years old. And um, it was all about being the test model. There was a guy named Paul Cruz who had sort of the corner on the market of this beautiful natural light coming in this um, uh, uh, northern-facing window that he had in his studio. And you could always tell the Paul Cruz shot. So it was like, what was a Lou Lesko shot? And I was emulating a guy named David Christensen who was the master of location photography. Like his lighting was stunning and his locations were brilliant. And if they weren't brilliant, he made them brilliant. And so there was like this sort of that was I was pursuing those are the people I was chasing, trying to become those people. And um, as I started getting better, uh, sadly, David Christensen um, passed away from AIDS. And in a weird, bizarre thing, I was still trying to get my head around like why why a lot of the friends in my fashion industry were passing away from this disease that sort of came on the scene, and nobody knew what it was. And there's all this weird paranoia and people were going through the cast of the gay area of San Francisco, like not touching the bars on the buses for fear of getting, it was like this weird paranoia going around. All of a sudden this one guy who I was chasing is gone. And then I got sucked into that niche. All of a sudden I became the new David Christensen mm. with, and I wasn't as good as he was, but it was, it was a, suddenly I was shooting a lot of that type of stuff. And then it went on to, um, I uh, started getting some magazine stuff, mostly hair things. The only people that were taking a chance on me were people that had salons. So it's like, okay, let's set up a little mini studio in the salon, shoots hair stuff, and boom, boom, boom. And then I got accepted to school. And then when um, I graduated from USC with an English degree, and when I got out, I wanted to get back into fashion. But everyone I respected, as I started to become more sophisticated in terms of who good photographers were, um, had all been assignment photographers at one point at some level, like Cartier Brisson and that sort of thing. I said, oh, that's how you become good. You become an assignment photographer. And again, this kind of dovetails into the whole concept of capturing stories. And through a bizarre set of, very bizarre set of circumstances, I ended up in Russia at Novosti Press International. I was uh, in San Francisco, having just graduated from college at USC, and um, I had been out all night. <laughs> and it was one of those decisions, like, well, do I caffeinate and just you know, soldier through the next day or go home and go to bed. And I said to go get a coffee and it's like 6 a.m. And I was reading this news, the San Francisco Chronicle, and there was this thing called the Montage Project. And they were talking about these kids at Stanford who had just graduated and Stanford gave them office space and Fred Siegel down in Los Angeles was financing this and all this money was coming in. And it was during um, Gorbachev and Glasnost and Perestroika and all that sort of thing. So the whole fascination with Russia was getting really heated because uh, Russia looked like it was finally starting to open up and people can get access. And so I thought, wow, assignment work, that sounds great. So um, what I'd done was, uh, before cell phones, I'd gone to the payphone uh, on, the, on the corner outside Bugatti Cafe in San Francisco and just dialed the uh, offices of Montage every 15 minutes until somebody came and picked up. And finally somebody picked up and said, hi, um, I noticed you've got Mark Weiner, who's now in NPR, mm-hmm. and uh, Susan McKean, all these great people, but no one's shooting pictures for you. I'll do it. And they said, oh, oh okay. And I said, so I grabbed my fashion portfolio, which is now dated by three years, and uh, I raced down there, and I pitched them for um, like two hours and half fashion journalism, really similar, and they bought it. <laughs> <laughs> And the bizarre thing about it was, 
is um, and the, the thing that kind of clinched me is I I um, sort of had this like closet fascination with the computer world and computers and all this other type mm-hmm. of stuff and um, I had sort of the closet geek side when I was a kid and connecting to BBSs and stuff like that so I was telling these guys I said oh by the way if we shoot anything in America we can use this thing called the internet and there's something called FTP and if we leave our computers on all night we can send a picture and they're like oh that's cool and next thing I know, I'm on my way to, uh, um, three months later, on my way to Russia. And after I came back from Russia, um, I continued photojournalism for about another year and a half, and I didn't have to show a portfolio for almost a year, because there was so much, um, there's so much press about this whole project and the whole thing, so. Hmm. So, while you're honing your skills as a, as a photographer and as a photojournalist, when did, uh... Learning about the business end, how did that fit in? <laughs> much, much, much later. Because <laughs> I gave away a lot of money. Um, <clears throat> basically what had happened was um, I had been cruising along and I'd become like uh, editorial fashion. I was doing a lot of editorial stuff, um, which was not paying a whole lot of my bills. And desperately, desperately begging for any sort of chance in the advertising industry which they're looking at my book saying, wow, you're a great editorial shooter. Too bad advertising is all about nitpicking and detail and all this little kind of stuff. And so um, I was really kind of wondering how I was going to make a buck. And um, after two years of photojournalism, I got back into fashion, again, through Michael, who was really wonderful about that. And um, I found the world of catalogs. And catalogs pay great money. And you kind of go to these locations, and it was my type of work because it was like, exactly how I'd been brought up as a photographer. Go to a location and make a 35 mini-stories happen. Um, so uh, I started shooting catalogs like crazy, and it was fun. It was my type of photography because it was go in a studio, go out here, go there, and just shoot all these little mini-stories, and I got paid really, really well for it. And then I was able to start making more context and stressing about money less, and um, I met somebody who said... We might be able to use you for a countrywide mortgage ad campaign. I said, what is it? Because we got to shoot a picture of a doorway. I'm like, great. So I went to Pasadena and scouted all these doorways and and um, found this house, went up to the door, knocked on the door and said, listen, I love your doorway. I need to shoot it for an ad. Can I take a Polaroid of your house? And then if uh, I get this doorway approved, uh, can I give you 500 bucks to shoot this doorway? And they're like, yeah, sure, no problem. And so I submitted three Polaroids for location scout the art buyer totally chastised me for not having like 50 and um, but you know it was a low budget shoot mm-hmm. um, somebody the other the art buyer came in and said here sign here and I said what's this she goes your usage rights is going to be used in Texas for some local ad campaign but we just want all the rights anyway I'm like okay cool so I signed that <laughs> I was feeling kind of like a big shot and so um, we went shot the store away Countrywide loved it and they wanted, they promoted it to a national campaign and it ran for two years, and I got $3,000 for a local Texas run because I'd signed away all the rights to the photo. Mm. But that was my introduction into uh, advertising. I started getting more advertising gigs um, because the advertising industry went through change and things were becoming more, remember, quote-unquote, real. Yeah. And so my editorial style finally fit with the advertising industry. I was getting, starting to get more stuff like that. And basically what had happened was... Um, 
I was making some good money. I was able to get representation, and so my money was being negotiated by an agent. And when I sat in the office and watched my agent on the phone talking about me, it was sort of a very eye-opening experience. I mean, it was this wow, there's a lot of money out there. What was he saying that surprised you? The, the thing that stands out in my mind the most is, it was a she. <laughs> she is on the phone, and she said, well, what about travel? And I'm like going, are they negotiating like first class or business class or something? It's like, oh no, it was time on the plane, being away from my home base of operation, flying to Florida to go shoot um, a small ad. They had to pay me for my time on the plane. And I'm like going, really? She goes, <laughs> Oh, yeah. And she goes, I said, that is so cool. You're so nice to do that for me. She goes, nice nothing. She said, I make money on your fees. The more fees that I get you, the more money I get. And she said, I love you. I think you're a really neat guy. But if you weren't making me money, we'd just be friends. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, it's just about money. So I sort of got that going. And then I was really having a nice run doing some advertising photography. And then uh, another by accident situation Um I was approached to write a uh, treatment for a breast cancer awareness commercial. And breast cancer is an issue that's very close and personal to my heart. And so I wrote this uh, thing about hands and for all the things that you do with your hands um, in a daily basis or something like that. Um, take a minute to send a message to yourself. And it ended on um, a woman giving herself a breast, a breast self-examination. And the idea was I wanted to make... Uh, the whole breast cancer issue positive because at the time there was a lot of public service announcements running that were all very oh the evil breast cancer monsters coming and all this it just total disconnect mm-hmm. and so I did this thing and I um, this treatment started circulating around and somebody in Amgen was talking to an oncologist and the oncologist said hey did you see this thing about hands and Amgen said wow that sounds great tell the photographer or the, whoever wrote it that we'll give them $25,000 to make the commercial. And at the time, I was hanging out with these people who were commercial producers, and there's a um, uh, Katya Meyer, who's a very big commercial producer now, but uh, was running a place called No Gun Studios. Or no, sorry, No Gun's Pictures. And um, they said, oh, we'll produce it for you. And so they called in every favor they possibly could because a small commercial is a minimum of half a million dollars. And they made this thing happen for $25,000, and then I signed a deal, and I started directing commercials. And once I started directing commercials, I saw how much money was made on the actual process of producing an image. And that's when I became very, very fascinated with the money aspect of things. And I realized that everything that happens in Hollywood, every time you see a celebrity anywhere that's in a non-paparazzi-type situation, somebody's making money. Mm-hmm. And that's when I became completely obsessed with the business end of things. And in terms of one of the things, before I get, get more into in, into that, um, I think it's interesting how so much of your career happens as a result of the relationships that you have developed. Yes, you know, and that's and it seems like it's a no brainer, but I think particularly in uh, in photography, where everyone is sort of fixated on learning the latest Photoshop trick or buying the latest generation of camera, that sort of insight that that you know chance and friendship sometimes sort of are key in order to, to achieve a certain level of success. I totally agree with that and I think it's I'm not much of a gearhead so if I ever get into a situation where I need to uh, execute a, a vision that I have for an ad, either a print ad or a commercial or something like that 
I ask around and find out who the smart people are because there are people who are obsessed with Photoshop or obsessed with cameras or there's somebody out there who has an obsession and they're the person that you want to hire. Mm-hmm. And um, the relationship aspect is I've spent more time at more parties than anyone I know hanging out at dreadful parties and hanging out at really good parties too but just so I can get to meet people on a social level not knocking on the door at the ad agency when nobody has any time to see anybody because it's so chaotic all the time but when you run into a situation and you just have a conversation with them you talk about what you're shooting and why you like shooting it that kind of resonates a lot and those sort of relationships whether they are deep relationships or they're sort of very surface relationships Mm -hmm. are all very very important how how about your, your promotion and marketing how did that you know, work work for you because a lot of people think about just sending out promo cards and waiting by the phone, but that's that really doesn't this doesn't work. It, it's it's not as good as it used to be, and I didn't I didn't do a lot of that, and I think I spent a lot of time and money um, redefining my portfolio, changing sizes, changing this, changing that. And it was so funny because when I first started as a photographer, life was so simple in the fashion industry. You had a 9 by 12 book. That was it. And it was a press book. And the only thing you were worried about is when the acetate pages started getting gummy. And you just buy a new press book. And that was that. And that was a portfolio. And then all of a sudden I got with an agent. It's like, oh, it has to be this, this, and this, and all these different leathers. And rumor can tell me on us. It's like, oh, man, I think people are just kind of interested in the pictures. And then I went through five years of thinking, well, no, I guess they're not. And then I went back to, mm, no, actually, they really are. They just care about the pictures. So um, a lot of the marketing that I had had to do with meeting people and then showing them my portfolio over coffee and not at the ad agency. And it was, I can't even think, there was no plan or rhyme or reason to what I was doing. It was just mm-hmm. very instinctual, but I'm a social ding-dong, so it, it worked out that way. I just, without knowing that I was doing it, I just maximized what I knew how to do best, which was um, sit around and chatter a lot. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, and I wish I could tell you, it's like, oh, yes, I had this grand master plan of how to approach it. It's like, no, I just, you know, on when I was first starting out as a photographer, uh, shooting model test, there was a girl named Jenny Morning, who was a model, six foot tall, stunning girl, worked all the time. And she and I would run around and be happy fashion people and run up our American Express cards um, to a point where they got dangerous, like, how are we going to pay it off at the end of the month? Because you can't. Yeah. You can't uh, carry the balance on them. And then all of a sudden it became like, okay, we all have to get jobs. And so you run around and get real desperate to find a job. You find a job, pay off the card, and go through the same process again. And there's something about that that I think I took with me, which I'm not really advocating per se, mm-hmm. but because um, I'm not advocating debt unless you do it wisely. But there's something about when you need to find work quickly, if you go to sleep thinking about it, you wake up thinking like, you know what, I should call this person and see what they got. And then if there's even the remotest hint that there's some interest there, then you just focus on it. Yeah. So. How did the web change the way, uh, not only the way you marketed yourself, but in terms of just the, the overall way you did business? Um, so because I have this, that little uh, computer set that I like so much, um, I got on the web really early on. And I think it's maybe one of a thousand photographers that had a website. And my friends, who are super heavyweight programmers, built it for me in like a day and a half. And this is before all the tools that exist to build websites. And all of a sudden, I get a call from England, without exaggeration, about six hours after the website was up. And it was this lovely lady at um, an ad agency there who produced 
photos in England, but it was all of California and mostly California type stuff that they needed pictures of. And it was great because it was a combination of editorial photography assignment. They didn't send an art director out and I get to capture it, but I had to shoot it a little bit more steady, so to speak, than editorial stuff so they could do something with it. And because they found me on the web, I had this gig for two years. I made a fortune. Hmm. And they were so thrilled to have somebody that was reliable and getting stuff in on time and getting it to England and the whole thing. And then after that, um, <clears throat> the web just became, everyone had to have a website. We won't do that phase. I have like, if you don't have a website, you're nobody. And then suddenly, um, I'm not shooting as much as I, as I used to, but two years ago, I can't remember the last time I sent a portfolio out. People were booking me off my website. So now part of that are, this is not new business, this is people who exist, but when they're pitching me to the client, they say, you know, we worked with him before, we love him, he's great, he has a great um, gig, uh, or he has a great set, and then um, take a look at the site, and the client be like, great, let's just do it. Yeah. And then the other thing was, is during the first dot-com bubble, um, because the web was the web, I was getting booked off that all the time. They, they, my agent would say, hey, do you want to see a portfolio? I'm like, why? We're looking at the pictures right now. And so these are the naive people that needed pictures, that were willing to pay a lot of money for pictures, but that whole ritual of portfolio submission had disappeared, and I just see that going more and more. Yeah. So. Well, one of the things is, well, the web has provided a means for photographers to be discovered by people that otherwise might not find out about them. Um, one of the big issues is the fact that it makes it easier for people you know, to get images mm-hmm. and to use them without compensating the photographer. And I know you're in, in, in the midst of that whole sort of <laughs> heated discussion. Um, I knew this uh, was coming. So um, I, think it's, I, I think your perspective is pretty unique and, and, and kind of interesting. But um, I know it's a lot of ground to cover in a limited time, but why don't you just in brief sort of explain what your, your, your perspective is about it. So the big... The big issue um, started with a woman named Lane Hartwell in San Francisco. She shot a picture of um, Owen, I can't remember his last name, Owen Thomas, I'm sorry. And he's the um, guy who runs Valley Wide, which is like a gossip website for Silicon Valley. She is, um, uh, she goes to events, she's an event photographer. And uh, there was a group of guys in Silicon Valley who in their off time have an acapella group called and the Richter Scales and they made a video called about the second dot com bubble which ended up on YouTube and got like a million hits in 10 seconds or something like that I mean just some sort of ridiculous popularity and tech crunch and all the heavyweight blogs were talking about this video Lane Hartwell decided to have um, the video removed because her picture was used in it for a brief second and um the uh, her, it, and she wasn't compensated for it. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of people who were on the internet were pissed off at her and saying these scathing things about her. TechCrunch was not very nice to her. And then, um, oh, sorry, that's fine. There, okay. Is that? Yeah, it's picking it up. So okay, are we okay? Yeah, if you can turn it off. Yeah, well, sorry good. about that. So anyway, so she didn't get compensated. The internet completely lashed out at her, and then photographers, not surprisingly came running to her side. And I began to look at the issue. It was so polarized. And there's, you know, in most arguments, there's some sort of middle ground that everybody's missing. Mm-hmm. And there was no middle ground here. And I thought, wow. And so I interviewed the Richter Scales. And 
they didn't come off as completely genuine to me and I wrote about this in the article because it was sort of like they made sure to give Billy Joel credit because they knew they had a team of lawyers but none of the other photographers got a credit and even if it was on this like rolling massive list of everything that at the end of the video it would have been fine at least it was an attempt there yeah. and who cares and so I became began to look at well would the 50 bucks have been worth it playing Hartwell or would the exposure have been worth more on the internet and I started realizing the the currency of the internet is the link. And then I started becoming very, very impassioned and um, enchanted by the whole piracy concept. And as I dug a little bit more into that, I came to realize um, through a book called uh, The Pirate's Dilemma um, that the entire country, the United States, is based on piracy. When we came here and we started our industrial revolution, we completely ignored all the tr uh, trademark and um, intellectual property laws from all the technology that we stole from England. <laughs> and had we not done that, we would have not have grown as rapidly as we did. Um, the music industry, piracy, there's bad piracy and then there's good piracy. But piracy, going against the norm, bucking the system and trying something new, tends to breed um, completely new industries and the best example that I have of that is Pirate Radio in England was um, great new music that was being broadcast on boats in international waters towards the city so one of those boats I can't remember the name of the radio station actually became a legitimate radio station because when the government tried to take them offline all the people rose up and said what are you doing what are you doing and they found themselves in this very tenuous position so when I started to think about that um uh, Matt Mason writes a book, The, the Pirate Salon is by Matt Mason, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, I started to realize that that's what needs to happen in our industry now, is no one has a business model to handle the internet stuff. Digging in and becoming a litigious industry is absolutely antithetical to a positive long-term goal of this industry. And we have enough, uh, we have enough problems as it is with the uh, dilution of um, value of our stock images because of eye stock and everything else like that. What's happening is the business model for photographers is changing and no one has a beat on what the new business model is and the only way to do that is to get our stuff out there, start talking about how um, we're internet friendly people, we are part of it because fighting people on the internet is not going to raise awareness but um, letting people get stuff and understand there's value to images and communicating more about it will raise awareness. And I think one of the ideas that you've been talking about has been this idea of the link being, you know, sort of the, 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 the commodity, I guess, that the photographer can use to his, to his, to his benefit. And um, that saying that as long as a blogger or whoever uses the images, as long as they're linking back to your site, that it doesn't have to become a, a litigious issue. Is that it's, it, it is it is exactly what I'm saying, and it's um, the currency of the internet is the link through, and the internet was set up as a free exchange system, and this has been bolstered in terms of information when the internet first started. That's why the internet existed. So um, the uh, the institutions, the the universities that were working with the government, could have um, a conduit to be able to exchange information as they're doing research for the government, def uh, uh, defense issues and all that sort of thing. The internet exists because um, there was a system that needed to be put in place during the Cold War era that if a city got knocked out by a nuclear 
blast that the system would automatically rewrite, reroute itself around the dead city, so to speak. That's how the internet started. That's why we have these these constant hops and skips between all these different routers all over the country, ultimately around the world. Um, because the internet started as a, uh, a conduit for free exchange of information, that is the legacy that has been brought up through the internet. And even now today, many of the things that are in my software are based on open source um, chunks of code um, to the point where <clears throat> some of the pieces of code that my programmers used in our software, we would go back to the people who originally wrote it and post, posted it on the internet as sort of their claim to fame mm-hmm. and said, we're, we want you to know very specifically we're using this in a commercial product, we are making money on this product, we would like to compensate you for this code that you've written. And we, we got no takers. We, zero takers. They said, no, could you please make sure that I get some sort of credit? Mm. And I said, yeah, how about credit and a check? You know, <laughs> we'll do both. And they were kind of like, no. And so there's a lot of pride in a lot of stuff that's on the internet that people do it as sort of a hobby. It's not their mainstay for for making a living. And it's, it's about being noticed and about being in the theater, so to speak. And there is a certain celebrity status that you can have on the internet that doesn't require you to go to Hollywood. And as I am coming to understand that more, I'm understanding that photographers, while we're used to being compensated for every time our images are used, we need to get in sync with that because we are not going to re-educate the internet to a different way of thinking. It will never happen. However, we can start playing nicely with the bloggers and <clears throat> other people who would use our images for non-commercial um, uh, non-commercial uses. And as our name gets out there, the people that would be looking for a photographer with the, the understanding that they're going to have to pay a photographer to do something will have a familiarity with our names and they will associate it with good work. And I've always very strongly believed that if you compare anyone here... Um, uh, whether they're in school or they've been out for a couple of years or they're veterans like you and I if you put our picture up against anybody who has anything on Flickr or who's an amateur or things like that there's a distinct and immediate difference what the gap is is that many people who are on the internet do not know that difference exists once they start seeing um, a well shot image with an um, attribution link to a photographer they will come to realize that good photography exists here in this space with the good photographers and the things that you find on Flickr's by amateurs are happenstance if they're good, and most often they're not good. And people will start craving the better work, and that will ultimately raise the tide for everybody. Or that's my hope. And as much as I want to say this is the absolute be-all, end-all solution to everything, mm-hmm. it's all I've got. And what I'm doing with my work, um, as I said at the Microsoft Summit, is I'm, putting, I'm actually talking to the president of Flickr this week, and I'm putting my stuff on Flickr, everything that I've shot in the last 20 years that's worth anything, I'm putting it up on Flickr for free to see what happens. And attributor.com in Silicon Valley is going to track it across the internet, and it's going to be the research project because I can't sit here and tell people this is what we do without sacrificing my own work. And and so I believe in the piracy thing enough to take everything that I have that I can make money on potentially in the next 10 years, and I'm just going to throw it out there for free and see what it gets me. Yeah, a lot of people bristle with the idea of that. I you know that it's. I'm sure you heard it when you were at the Microsoft Summit, you know, and 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 you know, even before that, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, what do you, what do you think is sort of the, the number one issue for the, uh, for them? Why do they feel like 
they cannot trust the internet and the people who are using the internet to, um, you know, to to basically live to that sort of gentleman's agreement and still benefit and not end up losing money and all of a sudden, sudden devaluing, you know, something that they've worked so hard to, to develop. Well, there's, there's two issues that I think you need to talk about here. The first one is the devaluation of, or the dilution of value of existing work. And it is a common, um, a common thought that if you have a stock image that is a particularly well-shot image and it gets used a lot, it devalues it. Um, and it was very true up until about four or five years ago. I think now, because there's such a massive proliferation of imagery on the internet, having it out there at all is you're doing better than you were. Okay, and I think that the, the um, whole concept of dilution of value has flip-flopped, that if anybody recognizes it, amongst this massive sea of visual imagery, you are doing great. And there's a sort of bizarre um, celebrity status for just having somebody come and say, oh, I saw your picture on the internet. Mm-hmm. The reason that we're not gonna win a war by going and saying, hey, you can't use those pictures, those are my rights, and blah, 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 blah. I hate to be so brutal about this, but you know, if you put it on the internet, you've lost control of it. That's the long and the short of it. I don't care how many international copyright laws exist, and um, around the globe, if you put it on the internet, you've lost control of it. So, put things on the internet, knowing that you lose control of it. That's there's no other way to do it. You, yeah. we, okay, um, if you're going to lose control of it, you might as well manage the chaos as much as you can and maximize what you're going to get out of that loss of control. And that's why I think we need to um, make sure to tell people that, hey, use the image. Please give me attribution. I would love it because. Surprisingly, a lot of the people that are starting up endeavors on the internet are not savvy about copyright law or the fact that an image is worth something, but they're not particularly bad people either, and they're not malicious, and they're not bastards, and yes, people constantly argue, well, there are a lot of people out there like they're, yep, you know what, there's a lot of crappy drivers on the freeway. <laughs> you know, I mean, say yeah. levy, that's the way it goes, you have to deal with the crappy drivers, and you got to deal with the, the um, you know, the assholes that steal stuff, mm-hmm. and that's just the way it goes. Um, so we could spend a whole show talking. Oh yeah, sorry about that. Sorry, sorry. I know, and I, I wanted to touch on it because yeah. I think it's it's important issue to talk about. But I also wanted to talk to you about the software. Okay. Um, and one of the things that appeals to me about about that, particularly, you know, in my role as a as a photographer and also in my role as a as a teacher, is the whole idea that, that the whole idea of how to properly invoice and bid and all that other stuff. Um, it's such a steep learning curve, you know, because there's so much legalese right. that's involved in that. And and like you said, when you were first learning, you know, not realizing you can charge for travel, right? You know, exactly. and all that other stuff. It's 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 you end up losing money as you're learning. Correct. But I think the software offers, you know, uh, an aid in terms of developing those, those sort of basic skills. So why don't you tell me about how this software came about and what was what was the idea that propelled it? Um, the software came about when I started directing commercials more. I was involved less in doing the bidding on the photography side, and my agent wasn't much for bidding. She didn't, she's a bit of a prima donna, and, and so we needed somebody to actually do the work of creating the bids. And so it's sort of like hiring somebody that that was a reasonable producer to come and do bids for us and that sort of thing. 
And there was no software out there that was easy to use. We need something with a very shallow learning curve. And so that's kind of how the software was born. And then as I started getting more into it, the first two years that the company existed, I, I was involved with it, but I was still trying to shoot pictures and do commercials and all, and all that other type of stuff. And I began to realize that there was a real need for creating a tool that made it easy to understand business. Business is the exchange of commodity for money or commodity for commodity. And the best way that you can do that to benefit yourself is to be very clear in the communication to the person who's going to give you the money. The biggest hurdles that artists, creative people run into in that process of communication is the communication itself. They see um, an estimate or an invoice as a necessary evil to get a gig or get a check, mm -hmm. when in fact it shouldn't be. It should be just as important as making sure you're, you have enough um, CF cards with you on the shoot, enough lenses, a backup camera, the batteries are charged. All these things are the most boring things in the world about photography, but you wouldn't go out to the middle of nowhere on location without two backup bodies and a bunch of batteries and make sure that you were tight and ready to go. Why would you compromise the money? You know, it doesn't make any sense. So <laughs> um, the software really became, I, so I, I devoted full time to the company and the software really became um, a medium for making it easy for someone to come into it, use it, and be able to get the communication of what they should get paid out to the person while protecting their rights and doing all this in a rapid fashion. Because I've had, when I started as a photographer and I was less busy, I would have these moments of like, I've got a job, and then it'd be three months until I got my next job, and then all of a sudden you pick up this Excel spreadsheet that you spent 25 hours making and so you can calculate everything and it doesn't make any sense because you don't remember what you used to do. This software is developed so if you walk away from it and you come back to it, you can figure out where to start and end again. And, and, and in brief, why don't you explain what BlinkBit does? BlinkBit is basically estimating invoicing software. It gives you a laundry list of everything you would ever charge for in a job or if you're a graphic designer or we're going into all the other different creative genres. But it gives you a laundry list of everything you would ever need on a photographic shoot. If there are specialized things that you need, you can add to this list. But it presents you the list. You go down the list, you double click on it, and you add it. And then um, as you're adding it, you put in what you think it should be worth. Um, and then things like marking up various items will make it really easy to do all these little minuscule things that can make it a couple bucks here and there. And then the other star component of the BlinkBid is the usage license builder, where you answer six questions and we put in a big legal paragraph. So from the first estimate that you submit, the person that you are submitting to understands that you are legally savvy and they should not screw around with you. Because that is a big issue that if you submit like a Microsoft Word document and just have any sort of legal paragraph on there, there are people out there that are going to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. And it happened to me. I mean, you know, it happens to everybody. It's, you know, on the one side you could argue it's good business on the people screwing the photographers, but I'm on the photographer's side. So, and, you know, it's like one of those things once you start with something, you really want to make it good and then better and better and better and you start getting all this feedback from photographers and nobody likes to hear criticism, so you start to screw it up and make it even better, so... You've had a whole bunch of different roles. You've been a photographer, you know, you've been a videographer, a director, and now you're, you know, it's software. I mean, you've covered a lot of a lot of different areas in terms of photography. Yeah. You know, how is photography still a passionate part of your life? Because we've been talking a lot about sort of the business, but, you know, I, I know that 
your role as a photographer has changed. But right. I think I, you know, I still you're still passionate about photography. The, in the, the end, the thing that's really fun, I did my career spanned 25 years as a photographer, starting from those first days um, in San Francisco in the fashion industry, and what I love the most about photography is telling stories. It's, it still comes down to the same thing. And it, I like the business side of what I'm doing. It's challenging. It's fun. It's really, really good time. But I never travel anywhere without taking a camera with me. And as the world becomes sort of centered on what everybody sees on YouTube and various places around the internet, I think the genuine, authentic experiences that exist in the outlying areas of the world, all the little cities, the towns, and all this other sort of thing, I think those stories are getting lost because there's not that sort of internet access or the people in these small towns aren't particularly interested in running around with a video camera and putting what's happening in Barone, France on YouTube. And interestingly enough, whenever I come back from pictures of those places, or even I'm sure the places that you shot in New York on your last trip there, um, people are fascinated by what's going on beyond what's happening in front of their TV. Mm-hmm. And I think, man, that's... Whenever I hear the comment, like, wow, I was looking at that picture and I really felt like I was there, you know, that's what really gets my nipples erect. <laughs> 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 because then you've done something good. It's, it was fun to be there for you and take the picture and feel that when that information translates to somebody else and they get it, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's it. And there's, whether you're getting paid or not getting paid, Man, that's awesome. Uh, well, the last question I always ask is okay. I ask a photographer to recommend another photographer who they think listeners should go out and check out and discover. So okay. who would that be for you and why? Um, so I'm very, I feel like I'm an old man in the industry and I'm, I'm very happy in that role. And so I'm all about the up-and-comers right now. And on our site, BlinkFit, where the software exists, the homepage actually features uh, new photographers that are up-and-coming. And the first iteration of that, the first month of that, is all women photographers because I love this industry, but it is a dude festival. And I'd like to see more women be represented in this industry. So we're featuring um, three female photographers. And my current favorite photojournalist is a woman named uh, Shiho Fukada, um, S-H-I-H-O-F-U-K-A-D-A.com. Mm-hmm. And her work is extraordinary and inspiring, and she has an incredible story about how she got there. And I highly, highly recommend looking at her site. It will knock your socks off. Okay. Well, I could spend hours talking to you. I hope I didn't go on too long. No, but uh, thank you for being on the show. Well, thank pleasure. you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the show. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. Till next time, this is Ivarian X Perello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.